live from Earth. It's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we have a very exciting special edition where I am talking with Dr. Emily Holt, archaeologist and visiting assistant professor of classics at Miami University, and we're going to talk about the skies and the astronomy and the science as our ancestors knew it and what we might or might not know about it. But first, the news. Hello space fans, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State, and for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all the wonderful things in our universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern in Studio A of WCB Radio Columbus. Call 888-581-0708, get those questions in. You can also follow along on the live streams on YouTube and Twitch. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. And you can also follow me on social media. I'm at Paul Matt Sutter on all the channels. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops, so get those calls in. Like I mentioned, folks, this is a very special episode. I'm not taking questions right now because uh, I have a very special guest with me. Sitting right next to me is Dr. Emily Holden, archaeologist and visiting assistant professor of classics at Miami University. She's an environmental archaeologist, especially studying the neuragic culture of Bronze Age Sardinia. Emily, Dr. Holt, <laughs> I presume. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's so exciting. I, I, I asked you to come on the show mm-hmm. because uh, you do some absolutely fascinating work so to get started why don't you just tell people well, what is a neuragic culture <laughs> what is an environmental archaeologist just okay. unpack your title for All right. everyone i can do that um so the neuragic culture is a really exciting uh, bronze age culture and so bronze age is different depending on where you are in the world so in sardinia when i say bronze age um i mean roughly around 2000 bce to roughly around 1000 bce um, and the culture that I study, the neuragic culture, is kind of develops a little bit into that. So it starts around 1700 and goes to about 1900, depending on who you ask. Other people would date that later, but you know, we always kind of disagree. Usual academic. The usual deal. academic stuff. So it's called the neuragic culture after these towers that are called neuragi, and uh, the neuragi were built all over the island. We estimate there were probably about 10,000 of them. They're these conical-ish stone towers. Some of them get really tall, up to four stories tall. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, really? Yeah, no, they're huge wow. and really impressive. And they have these beautiful um, kind of corbelled chambers inside them and intramural staircases that wind around inside to get you to the next level. Uh, they're very impressive. And so the Neuragic culture built thousands of these all over the island of Sardinia, probably kind of as part of an elite, the development of an elite and the way the, that elite expressed uh, dominance and power. So it wasn't like a gladiator course or was mm-hmm. it like, you know... Like, was it religious, political, all the above? Probably probably on all of the above, nice. um, as most things are in the ancient <laughs> world. I'm um, in the modern world, too, for that matter. Um, so probably the size is a show of power. Probably they have some defensive capabilities, uh, especially in some places where we have evidence that things might have been more unstable than others. But then we have evidence in other places where it looks like they really weren't concerned about expressing or using them for defense. They're more just for show. Probably they did develop some religious components, especially 
kind of later in the culture, it looks like some of that religion may go in and come inside. There's kind of these external places of doing religion at tombs and things like that. But then kind of later on in the culture, it looks like they kind of maybe are doing some of that inside the towers for a while, and then they do it outside again. So the culture goes through a lot of development, even in its, you know, kind of yeah, roughly yeah. 800 years. But then, yeah, the towers are, are an expression of all kinds of different power and different kinds of dominance. But they also do other, you know, really cool stuff. They're trading with people. Um, they're uh, making these really cool little bronze statues. Then they start making these big stone statues. There's a lot of interesting development that happens. Very cool. So how do you as an environmental archaeologist, approach mm-hmm. that kind of study? That's a great question. So what seems to be going on in a lot of the Mediterranean at this time is an episode of climate change. There seems to be a progressive drying that happens, and it's been confidently identified in the East Mediterranean and a little less confidently in the West, but we're working on that. Um, but it does look like the environment's getting drier, and I see evidence in where I study that water resources are shifting around in the landscape, that they dry up in some places and then reappear in other places. And in response to that, this elite that I mentioned seems to kind of, one, freak out a little bit. They move their settlements to follow the water. But two, they also use it as a way of claiming more power. Before they uh, put these towers, these early towers, next to water sources. And then after the water sources shift around in the landscape, they actually put them right on top of them and kind of claim them and protect Ah. them. And so they create a much stronger association. So I'm really interested in kind of the intersection of what's going on environmentally, politically, and then also ideologically and how those things feed into each other to create a system of power. And was this a prehistoric culture? Do they have writing or not? Yeah, not that we know of. So we have no written records left. Um, There's certainly other historic cultures in the Mediterranean Mediterranean at this time, of course, and they are in contact with those cultures, Mm -hmm. but they don't seem to develop a writing system of their own. So when it comes to these prehistoric cultures, especially where they don't leave a written record of Mm -hmm. why they did things, uh, especially when it comes to things like astronomy or or monuments that we might think are associated with astronomy, Mm -hmm. how do we know... That if we see a building, you're like, oh, yeah, this was used to mark the solstice so they could start their agriculture. Like, we see examples of this all, all around the world. How can we actually know this? And that's, what are some of the challenges? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's really difficult, actually. And one of the things that archaeologists talk about and argue about a lot is how difficult it is to use archaeology to, to know what people were thinking. We can see what they did, but knowing why they did it, what they were thinking about when they did it is really tough. Um, so for, for a prehistoric culture to say confidently that they're, say, making a monument intended to uh, record or acknowledge some kind of astronomical event, we really need an absolute smoking gun. Um, what would be a smoking gun? So a, smoke, an example of, a good example of a smoking gun would be, uh, for example, Newgrange, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, this Neolithic um, passage tomb in Ireland. And its entrance is aligned with the rising sun on the winter solstice. And not just the doorway. There's a special cutout that gets called a roof box above the doorway. And the level of the roof box, the level of the, inter- the floor of the internal chamber, and the level of the uh, local horizon are all the same. And so as soon as the sun rises, the light goes through the roof box into the back of the chamber and illuminates it. Like a little laser. Like, like a little laser. right there. Exactly. Ah, wow. And that's not an accident. Right. It's yeah. not like, oh, what a weird coincidence. Yeah. You don't, exact, you don't accidentally line up all of those three things so that they're on a perfect level. Right. So that's what I would mean by like a smoking gun. Now, what you said about intention, like, so obviously the winter solstice was important to this mm, culture. Absolutely. Do we know why the winter solstice was important to this culture? We don't really. We can, we can hypothesize, you know, kind of based on 
uh, comparison with, you know, cross-cultural comparisons. So, of course, since it is the shortest day of the year, uh, that's pretty symbolic. And, you know, we can think about maybe there's there's some kind of concern with, you know, making sure that the light comes back or just acknowledging that this is the, the shortest day of the year. This is, the, you know, the deepest part of winter. And from now, from now on, it's going to get better. They're hoping that Santa Claus comes. <laughs> they, you know, like, like the usual, usual comes. things. Exactly. Uh, but we, what we do know is that it does seem to be um, consistently important uh, cross-culturally or kind of in a big culture area in Ireland and uh, the UK and Scotland at this time, because we do have a couple of other monuments. Um, Stonehenge uh, shows an alignment that um, is, is uh, that lines up with the solstices. And then additionally, um, uh, Maisau, uh, which is another Ooh. of these kind of chambered passage graves, um, and that one's in Orkney, but again, a Neolithic passage grave, um, is also uh, aligned this time, not with the rising sun, but with the setting sun uh, oh, for the winter okay, solstice. Okay. So, so it, apparently there's this cluster of cultures that are possibly related mm-hmm. or probably related yeah. where the solstice played a major role mm-hmm. somehow. Yes. Uh, but then, of course, there's cultures all around the world. Maybe some of them didn't care so much about the solstice mm-hmm. for one reason or another. And then if we run into artifacts or monuments without a solstice, you know, mm-hmm. what else, what, how else can what we else tease could out? We even, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, that's really problematic. And so, for example, for the culture that I study, there's one monument that it's been uh, suggested has um, kind of a, an alignment. And it's one of these temples that I talked about that happens at the end, you know, a, a religious site that happens at the end of the culture. Um, it's an underground water temple, and they build these same kind of vaulted chambers underground over a spring. And then there's like a monumental staircase that you go down, and there's some kind of ritual that I takes place. I played this in level spring. in Zelda. I remember. It's yeah. pretty great, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. These things are so cool when you go to visit them in Sardinia. They're really affecting. Um, and there's one uh, that is the Well Temple of Santa Cristina uh, near Pauli Latino. And it uh, has been argued that there's an, there's an opening, well, I mean, there is an opening, um, above uh, the, at the top of the chamber uh, that lets light down onto the water below. And it's been argued that it actually aligns up really well with the position of the uh, moon when it's at its zenith in that area. And this has been studied, it's still kind of debated, but the evidence seems to suggest that this, this might really be you know, maybe not a smoking gun-ish, but This but might close. mean something. This might mean something. But at the same time, you know, as you know, there's just so many astronomical events that occur. And then when we as modern people want to f- want to find that, we go looking for it, you can almost always find something that's going to line up. There's with. some star there's or some, some star. you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know some, some zenith, moon, some, some, some rising, mm-hmm. some setting. Like, oh, Venus, that Venus rises mm-hmm. through this little portal. Okay, Exactly. Okay. So if you look hard enough, you can find something. So I think this is really suggestive. I wouldn't necessarily say that I think it's been demonstrated. Okay, hold your thought because I want I want to keep following this line, but mm-hmm. we do have to take a break. Uh, this is Space Radio. I'm your host, Paul Sutter. I'm sitting here with Dr. Emily Hold, an environmental archaeologist and visiting assistant professor at Miami University. And this show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going and keep me having this wonderful conversation with Dr. Holt. And I will see you after the break. Hi, this is Anna Oscard of Toss the Feathers with a reminder that DNO Produce will give the Mid-Ohio Food Bank fresh produce every time you give cash to WCBE. Make your donated dollars go twice as far. Learn more at wcbe.org. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio. I'm sitting down with Dr. Emily Holt, environmental archaeologist and visiting assistant professor in classics at Miami University. And we're talking about astronomy to ancient cultures, what it meant to them, and how we know about that. And before the break, you were talking about, you know, we see monuments. Sometimes we see a smoking gun, like, oh, this obviously lines up with a solstice or a lunar zenith or something important. But a lot of times it's more nuanced and we have to make guesses. Does this make it challenging to communicate to the public about what we know of what our ancestors knew about astronomy and the role astronomy played in our ancestors' lives to these cultures? Certainly for any prehistoric culture, there's a lot of problems. And the the idea of having astronomical alignments is uh, so fascinating and it's undeniable that humans are, are interested in what's going on uh, in the sky. And all cultures are, all culture, cultures have been in some way. And so it does seem like just a natural association. But the problem is that we, from our modern perspective, want to see that relationship so badly that we, as we just talked about, we can find it if we want to. Um, and so then it does make it hard to communicate with the public because it looks compelling. You can you can find a way that these li- the things line up with astronomical occurrences. So like one of the examples uh, are, it would be the Nazca lines, and there's uh, there are so many Nazca lines, <laughs> and, and they point in so many directions, yeah, yeah. and there are so many things going on in the stuff in the sky. You can find alignments. The problem is that we can't demonstrate that that's what people were thinking about when they made them. We don't so, know the intent. Or we the don't know exactly. It. We yeah. don't know the intent. And so when the public, you know, really is excited about um, these alignments existing, it can be difficult to communicate. Well, okay, that's an, an interesting idea, but we can't we can't test that. And you know, uh, something that you've commented on in other podcasts that I really loved is the idea of this is an unscientific question. It's not a testable question, which doesn't make it a bad question because right. lots of important questions in the world are unscientific and they're not testable. But if you can't test it, and we really can't, we can't go back to these people and ask them, by the way, were you thinking about astronomical What's up with assignments? These lines? What's up with these lines? <laughs> Did you line them up with this thing? It just makes it an, an unscientific question and one that, that our discipline is not going to be able to answer. And this changes once we go into historic cultures because... We can go, in a way, ask, like, hey, what was up with this? What were you thinking? Because they told us what they were thinking. Exactly. And so in the historic cultures that that you know of and that you've studied, what was the role? of astronomy in these cultures? What that, did they tell us? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. And so my area of expertise is primarily in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So a good example would be um, looking at the development of the, the Greek culture. So starting with the archaic period, you know, up through the classical and Hellenistic periods, um, they told us a lot about what they think about the heavens. Um, so starting really early, if you go back all the way to the 8th century BCE, um, the very first people who were writing in in the the new line, the new written alphabet of Greek, uh, the the f- alphabet adopted from the Phoenicians, not the old linear linear B thing, which they totally forgot. With good reason. With good reason. So clunky. Yeah, you know, so, uh, you know, syllabic systems are just such yeah. a pain. Um, but um, so you get Homer and Hesiod, who are two are our, our first two writers of that period, um, and they both talk about the sky and constellations in the sky. Uh, Hesiod, in his uh, kind of didactic poem, Works and Days, uh, talks about all kinds of different constellations that are used for agricultural purposes. Um, so he talks about when the Pleiades are rising. So this is like a guide. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's it's like... totally. So Hesiod is writing a guide of how to be a good farmer to his like degenerate younger brother who mm. apparently like 
went and spent all of the family money and now has to bum off of, off is, of Hesiod. And probably not the best farmer. And, and is not the best farmer. So. so this is like this is like cultural knowledge that mm-hmm. Hesiod is just soaked in. Yeah. And he's like trying to capture some of it for his for his idiot brother. Yes, exactly. And just like you haven't been paying attention your whole life. Exactly. Can you please at least just read exactly. this. Exactly. Just Cliff's do this notes, thing. The Cliff's notes of what our of culture how to be a farmer. Understand. Okay. Exactly. But that's exactly what it is. And um so he talks about like, you know, when the Pleiades are rising, that's when you begin your harvest. When they set, that's when you plow. And that may sound a little bit wacky, but the agricultural season in the Mediterranean actually starts in the rainy winter. Ah. And the growing season is the rainy winter. And then you harvest in the spring when, you know, here in Mm -hmm. North America, we'd mostly think of planting in the spring. But that's not how it works. Um, And what's cool is this is still the case. Like, this is what I observe when I'm working in Sardinia. This is the agricultural. Yeah, absolutely. This is the agricultural system that that I see around me. You know, and they, they talk about other things. If you plow at the winter solstice, that's too late. You'll have a bad harvest. You have to do it earlier. Um, but all of these references to very specific constellations and their risings and settings and where they are and uh, specific references to stars in the sky. Like when Sirius is overhead, that's when you need to cut wood because at least according to Hesiod, you're less likely to get kind of wormy wood at that time. Interesting. So, cut so your there's wood. these uh, like kind of half folklore, half like... You know, just like uh, rules of thumb, mm-hmm. basically, that you're trying to encapsulate in the night sky. And... Exactly. Wow. And um, and so that's, you know, and it's clear that, so this is the first stuff being written down, but it's clear that this is a whole tradition of this knowledge. And this He is wasn't the, making it up. He wasn't making it up, and it, he wasn't inventing it. You know, like, this is this is something that he's been told. And we see the same kind of thing happening in Homer. But and with, you brought, you with brought a copy of the Odyssey, I which did. I assume you just carry with you everywhere and sleep with it under my pillow i'm not surprised at all Um, uh, because there's more than agriculture here for astronomy absolutely there's also navigation and i'll just read a quick passage from the new translation i'm reading the new translation by emily wilson which i really love so this is odysseus uh in the beginning of book five he's leaving the island of calypso um and he's setting out on a raft trying to get home to ithaca and it specifically talks about him navigating and it says no sleep fell on his eyes he watched the stars the pleiades Late setting Boates and Bear, which people also call the Plow, which circles in one place and marks Orion, the only star that has no share of ocean. So it talks specifically about him using particular constellations to navigate and also talks about those constellations' behavior. So it's really a lot of astronomical knowledge that's being encapsulated here. And super condensed, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, And obviously Homer probably wasn't making that up. Mm-hmm. Probably, exactly. Because, you know, he's blind, so he probably... That's, a, that's, at, least the, that's, a, that's at least the, the folklore. We don't really know right. if he was or not, but that's well, the folklore. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but, like, so, but it's just like things people know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So this is stuff that is uh, cultural knowledge that's passed down, it's transmitted, you know, socially from father to son or from, you know, master to apprentice or, you know, captain to, you know, new sailor. And it's only finally getting into the written record because this is when they start to have a written record again. Um, so, yeah, so this is a lot of cultural knowledge. Is there a way to connect when you see cultures transition from prehistoric to historic and mm-hmm. they start writing down their thoughts about all things, including astronomy, mm-hmm. is it possible to backtrack and go back and say, oh, this monument or this thing, oh, you know, they had these thoughts all along, these they had these knowledge, mm-hmm. this was important. Is, is that kind of extrapolation even possible? Well, it would, again, it would be highly suggestive. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be testable, but it could certainly be very suggestive. I don't know of any examples of that from, so that would be um, in Greece, we would call that the Iron Age. I don't really know of any examples from Iron Age Greece where we can do that. 
So, but you mentioned that not all cultures maybe were into the solstice. I don't, for the ancient Greeks, I don't know of a lot of, um, or I, well, I don't know of any monuments that specifically encode mm-hmm. um, ideas about the solstice, for example. And it's interesting how different cultures pick out different parts of celestial events to, mm-hmm. to lay a lot of significance on. Exactly, to be meaningful and to and so there's no universal around. like, oh, this culture over here really loved the solstice, therefore this monument mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of the world must also be important for the solstice because different cultures highlight different things. Exactly. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time on today's Space Radio, but before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I am not close to you right now. I'm physically sitting next to Dr. Emily Holt, environmental archaeologist and visiting assistant professor at Miami University. And I want to know a little bit more about you and your professional trajectory and career and the most important question okay. that must be answered that our listeners are dying to know. Okay. You're well-traveled. You've gone on digs. Yeah. You lived in Paris I for did. years. Mm-hmm. We may have overlapped in Paris. I think we talked about this. We I think I just missed just you. Missed I arrived in over- November of 2015. November of 2015. That's that's about when I left. That's mm-hmm. when I was leaving. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite kind of cheese? That is such a difficult question because the world is full of so many wonderful cheeses. Oh, don't I know. Uh, but I would have to say my favorite cheese, if I had to pick, and I'm sorry, Paris. And you must pick. And I must pick is an aged, uh, a really old Amsterdam cheese. Oh my goodness, the flavor is so intense. It's got those little crystals that that a good aged Parmesan develops, but with a very different sharp, uh, it's fantastic. There you go, wonderful recommendation. (laughs) Oh, and, and besides cheese, what got you into archaeology in the first place? Um, well, actually, a lot of the a lot of stories. So you know, we were talking about all these constellations. All these constellations have stories behind them. They're all they all have myths. And when I was um, a small child, I think I was about eight, I went to my mom and I was like, "Mom, I'm bored." And she's like, "Here, here's a book of Greek myths. Go, don't be bored." Done. And I read it, and I was just I'm in love completely with the idea of cultures stories. of the past. Yeah, mm-hmm. that like stories written down thousands of years ago and probably far, far older. Exactly, can, and just, can ignite passions today. Isn't that? Yeah, cool? it's wonderful. Okay, so you're out there, you're on social media, you're blogging. How can people find out more about you? Uh, well, my blog is errant.live. Um, That's E R I T? E R R A N T. Errant. Errant. Okay, like sorry. a knight errant, but I I'm mean, an archaeologist errant. So. That works. That yeah, works. It's, I like it. And then you're also on Twitter. Right? I am on Twitter. Um, so I'm on Twitter, Emily underscore Holt, M underscore Holt. And then I'm also the president of a nonprofit organization that uh, called Public Scholar Outreach that seeks to bring public scholarship produced directly by scholars to uh, people who are interested in it. And we're also on Twitter at Scholar Outreach. So definitely give us a very follow. Very cool. Very, very cool organization. I've been following it for a while, doing some very important work. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I look forward to what you might discover in the future. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me and Dr. Emily Holt on this voyage of space radio. I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Dan Michalka for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCB Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Call 888-581-0708 to join me on the air. 
You can follow the live streams. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. Thank you, Dr. Holt, for joining me. And see you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. 